When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Four Americans kidnapped in Mexico and now an international rescue effort has been launched to find them. The lead starts right now. A trip across the border turning into terror. Four Americans taken to Mexico, the car crash, the confrontation, and new images offering a glimpse of the frightening encounter. Plus, in a twist, D.C. backtracks, withdrawing its controversial crime bill, but that's not stopping the U.S. Senate charging ahead with its vote to override what the D.C. City Council wants. Plus, scary moments on a Southwest flight when a cabin filled with smoke and forced an emergency landing. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our world lead. Four U.S. citizens missing in Mexico after officials say they were likely targeted by armed criminals. Mistakenly, the FBI says the four drove from Texas into the Mexican city of Matamoros on Friday, where gunmen fired at their car, assaulted them, and then abducted them. A U.S. official says the Americans were in Mexico for medical procedures. Video obtained by CNN appears to show individuals being forcefully loaded into the back of a pickup truck in Matamoros on Friday. The border city has been racked by violence and organized crime since the Mexican drug wars broke out in full force in 2006. It's home to the once powerful Gulf cartel that has splintered into competing violent gangs. I want to bring in CNN's Rosa Flores in Houston and CNN's Kylie Atwood at the State Department. Rosa, Mexican officials just held a news conference about these missing Americans. What do they have to say? Well, these Mexican officials are saying that they are gathering evidence to try to find the Americans. But perhaps what the Mexican president said is most telling. He gave the best account. He says that they believe, Mexican authorities believe, that these Americans were on the Mexican side of the border getting a medical procedure, buying medicine, and that they were caught in a confrontation between two groups and that that is when the kidnapping happened. Now, according to a U.S. official with knowledge of the investigation, that's exactly what that official is telling CNN, confirming that according to documents that were found inside the Americans' vehicle, it confirms that these Americans were getting a medical procedure in Mexico and that they were not the intended targets, that they were not the intended victims, that they might have been mistaken for Haitian smugglers. Now, according to the FBI, the FBI says that these Americans crossed over into Matamoros, Mexico on Friday in a white minivan with North Carolina plates. Now, CNN has obtained video of the scene and photographs of the scene. And I should warn you that this video is graphic, but it shows the moment and the scene. Now, we do not know if the individuals who are in this video are actually the Americans, but it shows the scene. It 
shows a white van and Mexican officials confirmed that there was a collision and you can see in that video and those photos that there's a collision between a white minivan and a red vehicle. Well, according to that video, if you take a look, the individuals were dragged into the bed of a pickup truck at gunpoint. Now, the FBI has announced a $50,000 reward to find information uh, that will lead to the Americans and also to the individuals that did this. And again, um, uh, Jake, both on the American side and on the Mexican side, authorities are trying to do everything they can to make sure that these Americans are found. Jake? And Kylie, what role does the U.S. government have in trying to locate and bring these Americans home? Well, listen, Jake, as Rosa was saying, the FBI is really taking the lead on this. The FBI does have a presence in Mexico, which, of course, helps things. And they are the ones who put out that $50,000 reward for any information that could lead to arrest or the safe, secure uh, finding of these Americans. But we should note that there are other law enforcement agencies that also have a presence in Mexico and also have a role. That's according to uh, the U.S. ambassador to Mexico saying today that various law enforcement agencies are working with Mexican authorities to try and secure the safe release and safe location of these Americans. We should also note, Jake, that the State Department has actually told Americans not to travel to this area of northeast Mexico. It is known for criminal activity, for kidnappings and murder. All right. Kylie Atwood at the State Department and Rosa Flores in Texas. Thanks to both of you. I want to bring in Democratic Congressman Vicente Gonzalez, who represents the Texas communities right across the border from Matamoros. Congressman, have you heard any updates about the possible location or condition of these missing Americans? No, I just know that the FBI is is doing their investigation, and I think certainly we need to continue supporting them uh, in that effort. But we need to recognize this is really the tip of the iceberg, and and this is not an isolated uh, incident. This happens all the time. I'm glad it's caught the attention uh, of the FBI and the and the press this time. But I get reports similar regularly uh, happening across the border in Tamaulipas and other regions across Mexico that are cartel cartel controlled and. And it's an alarm that I've been sounding since USMCI was signed that I thought that was a missed opportunity to not uh, talk about security with Mexico. It's a huge concern. They're our second largest trading partner. And we have a problem across the border that we haven't addressed. And it's violence. Yeah, let's talk about that, because uh, I'd like to know what it is like to live right across from this area, not just the city of Matamoros, but the, in the entire region with the, with the, the cartels uh, and the drug wars. Right. The U.S. has even issued a do not travel, well, let me make that advi- clear. Or do not, uh, travel advisory for the area. Tell us more. Yeah. So uh, let me make something clear. I live across the border in the McAllen-Brownsville area. McAllen is the third safest city in the United States of America. So it's, it's safer than most cities in the country. So when you cross, when you're on the U.S. side, it's a dramatic difference. But I haven't driven across the border in 17 years because violence uh, erupted around that period and has never let up. And it's something that I think we haven't uh, had the political will to address. And uh, we we have a great trading partner next door, but we have uh, a cartel controlled uh, regions and certainly across our region, across our border, but in other parts of the country. And I think we need to serious conversations in Washington and with our friends uh, in Mexico City of how we're going to address this. Well, what do you think we should do? I mean, uh, I, I, 
I only raise this because it, it was uh, something that President Trump said. But President Trump has said, you know, we should be bombing the fentanyl factories in Mexico. Uh, obviously, we don't want to do anything uh, that the Mexican government would not want us to do. It's a sovereign government. Uh, but should we be lending more right. military aid uh, to our partners in Mexico to, to try to stop this problem? We should be working. We should. Yeah, we should be working along with them, but we need a much more aggressive approach. We need to be targeting uh, cartels as if they were terrorists, because at the end of the day, they are. You saw the videos today. I've seen videos for the last 20 years, even much more horrific than what we're seeing uh, on national news today. And uh, it's something that hasn't had an aggressive, um, meaningful approach from from our governments. And I think it's time. And, uh, and, and, you know, as I said, they're our second largest trading partner it's becoming, it's, if it's not already, a economic national security um, liability for us. And I think uh, we need to have honest conversations. We need to, more people have died in the drug wars in the last 15 years in Mexico than every war from Korea, Vietnam, or wars in the Middle East till today. Yeah. And, the, and we, uh, many of us sometimes in Washington, and I was just going to say, I was just going to say the biggest victims of this are obviously are the Mexican people. One last thing before you go, sir, we just learned investigators believe uh, that a Mexican cartel, perhaps the Gulf cartel, whichever one, um, likely mistook these four Americans for Haitian drug smugglers. Had you heard that? What's your reaction? Yeah. Yes. So I've heard that rumor. It's, it hasn't been confirmed, but uh, that 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 could be very likely so. So, um Yes, I'm, I'm glad the FBI is looking into it. I, we need to work with our partners across the border. We need to bring security uh, to regions, uh, especially right on our border. Oh, indeed. Democratic Congressman Vicente Gonzalez of Texas, always good to have you on, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. Turning to our politics lead now and an unexpected move by Washington, D.C. officials. Today, the council chairman of the D.C. City Council announced his plans to withdraw Washington, D.C.'s controversial crime bill. This is just days before Congress was set to overwhelmingly vote to overturn it. Sources say D.C. council members were blindsided when President Biden announced he would side with Republican efforts to overturn the bill, as did 31 House Democrats in a successful vote against the bill uh, in the House of Representatives. Given their concerns, which are, by the way, shared by the mayor of Washington, D.C., about how the legislation would lessen penalties for offenses such as carjacking and burglary, along with larger concerns about whether prosecutors in D.C. are being tough enough on criminals. And now, as CNN's Manu Raja reports for us, it's unclear what happens next. The D.C. City Council set to face a rare rebuke by a bipartisan Senate majority, poised to rescind D.C.'s new crime legislation, marking just the fourth time Congress has taken such a step to block D.C.'s laws in the last half century, now falling victim to the potent politics of crime. Shouldn't they make their own rules and laws? This is why D.C. should be a state. And so I advocate for D.C. statehood, but in this case, we have to uh, really beware and be careful uh, Be careful and make sure that people are safe in public. Nevada's Jackie Rosen, one of several Democrats facing voters in 2024, planning to vote for the repeal and siding with President Biden, who surprised lawmakers last week by saying he supported the GOP-led effort. I have real concerns about what they're doing. 
uh, with regard to public safety. Facing a defeat in the Senate, the chairman of the D.C. Council today announced he would try to withdraw the legislation in an attempt to stave off the vote. But Senate aides said that would not stop the chamber from voting this week to halt the local law, all causing fears among D.C. advocates that the latest controversy will undermine their push to make D.C. the 51st state. It's quite clear to me that the um, headwinds did that have prevailed in uh, Congress are about the politics of next year's election and not about what's the substance in this criminal code. The new measure marks the first time D.C. has made wholesale changes to its criminal code since 1901, including eliminating mandatory minimum sentences for offenses other than first-degree murder and reducing the maximum sentence for carjacking from 40 years to 24. There's nothing about the legislation that decriminalizes carjacking. But carjacking and some other violent crime in D.C. are on the rise. Now testing Biden's rhetoric, <laughs> backing D.C.'s autonomy as he prepares a potential re-election bid. He believes, and he has for some time now, that D.C. should be uh, a 51 state. Yet the White House has backtracked on this issue, saying in a statement last month that Biden opposed the GOP resolution. Then 173 House Democrats, including members of the leadership and from swing districts, voted against it. Now they're seen as to the left of Biden on this issue. I haven't had an opportunity to talk to the White House yet about the president's views. Now, when the Senate is expected to vote on Wednesday to overturn D.C.'s effort, we expect more than 70 votes potentially to block this measure going forward. But it is still unclear how the top two Democrats in the Senate will come down. Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, I just asked him how he plans to vote. He would not say. He said instead the caucus is debating this issue still and they will vote on Wednesday. And the number two Democrat, Dick Durbin, said he is now weighing President Biden's plan to allow this to take effect, to repeal this D.C law before he decides his own position. But Jake, he told me that the White House has had mixed messages over this issue and the president being back and forth speaks for itself. Hmm. Manu Raja on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss is Councilwoman Janice Lewis-George. She's a member of the D.C. Council. Congress, um, I'm sorry, Councilwoman George. Um, What's your response? The the council chairman is trying to withdraw your criminal reform legislation. It looks like the Senate's going to take it up anyway, which means it would go to President Biden. He would veto it. Uh, What's your reaction to all of this? Uh, Thank you, Jake. You know, this issue is fundamentally about preserving our local democracy and self-governance, two principles that our nation was founded on. We have 700,000 D.C. residents in this city who deserve the right to make their own laws like Americans in every single state in the union. You know, I was born and raised in D.C., so I have been disenfranchised my entire life. And instead of having voter representation in Congress, I have a Congress that tries to impose its will on me and other D.C. residents without our say. And that needs to change. And I think whatever the merits of the legislation, Congress should respect the people of D.C. and their elected representatives and let us make our own decisions for our communities. So that's the home rule argument, and I certainly understand it as a D.C. resident myself that has been similarly disenfranchised. But I have to say, do you think that this legislation helps the cause of home rule? Because it seems to be signaling to a lot of people that the city council, the D.C. council, uh, is passing a whole lot of legislation that might make the city less safe. That's what we're hearing from the 31 House Democrats, and that's the suggestion that we're hearing from Democrats in the Senate and and President Biden as well. 
Jake, first of all, I, I don't believe that a single Republican in Congress has read this bill or knows what's in it. And they're just using this bill to spread misleading and dis disingenuous, soft on crime talking points. House Speaker McCarthy was on CNN this morning saying that the council wants to decriminalize carjacking. That's completely false. Under this bill, carjacking in D.C. carries a sentence of up to 24 years, and that doesn't include the enhancements that can come with it. In the speaker's home state of California, carjacking is only punishable by nine years. And frankly, the speaker's ignorance on this issue is exactly why Congress shouldn't be making decisions for the District of Columbia. And I'm a former prosecutor who practiced in the District of Columbia. Every day in our courtrooms, I saw firsthand how D.C.'s current code, it makes it harder for judges, defense attorneys, and prosecutors to enforce the law. We need a clear, consistent, evidence-based criminal code that allows us to uphold the law hold people accountable and make our city more just and more safe for everyone. And that is what the criminal code revision was all about. Um, and in no way were, are we seeking to make our community less safe um, at all. We need clear and consistent laws. And, and our criminal code, just like everyone else in the country, is based on the model penal code, which every other state has. So I, it's, it's just completely disingenuous. Um, and there's so many misleading lies sure. um, based, based on you know, information that's just been thrown out. Right. And I'm not holding up Speaker McCarthy as some exemplar of facts and truth. But like as a, as a matter of fact, carjackings just went up in Washington, D.C. for a fifth straight year. And this legislation would lessen the penalties for carjacking. It wouldn't decriminalize it, but it would lessen the mandatory minimums. That's right. And this comes as crime is rising in D.C. Don't the people of D.C. need a council focused on protecting them and not making it easier for carjackers to get back on the street? That is an inherently violent crime. That's correct. I, it's true, like cities across the country, if, uh, we're experiencing a crime surge that needs to be urgently addressed. But we have decades of data showing that long sentences do not deter crime. What actually deters crime is the likelihood that someone will be caught and prosecuted, not the lengthy sentence. D.C. already has a higher incarcerate, incarceration rate than any state in America. And so if long sentences prevented crime, we would already be the safest city in the nation. And if we want to talk about the roots of crime, then we need Congress to do something about ending poverty, um, looking at the minimum wage across this country, about improving education, about addressing mental health. If Congress wants to actually help DC make DC safe, it would it, it would and should enact strong gun control legislation to stop the flow of illegal guns from from other states coming into DC, whether you know where where they're being used to commit more serious crimes. And so you know, we can we are addressing crime every single day, the root causes and preventing it. We need a Congress that's going to do the work around gun control laws um, and gun control legislation yeah. um, within within this country to do something about it. I think one of the other issues and we don't have time to talk about this, unfortunately, but one of the other issues is whether or not prosecutors in D.C. are actually seeking tough sentences for uh, carjackers that have been convicted, not not whether or not it's a 24 or 40 year sentence, but whether or not two years is enough. But I'm afraid um, we are out of time. Uh, D.C. Councilwoman Janice Lewis-George, thank you. We'll be sure to have you back to talk about this. Thank you so much, Jake. Ahead in Atlanta, protests against a cop city police training site. The new charges today against so-called agitators mixed in the crowd and how Ukrainians are holding the line with Russian forces on the verge of capturing the strategic town of Bakhmut. Plus, a man accused of trying to open an emergency exit door on a flight to Boston 
and trying to stab a flight attendant. The details coming in on this one ahead. Topping our world lead, Ukrainian officials are horrified and furious after a video of a Ukrainian prisoner of war's execution went viral. In the video, an unarmed soldier is shot after saying, quote, glory to Ukraine. CNN has obtained this graphic video. Here is a part of it. It has been edited. What you're about to hear, however, might be disturbing. Ukrainian officials say that execution is a blatant war crime to add to the long list of Russian war crimes. Meanwhile, in eastern Ukraine, Russia is on the cusp of capturing the symbolic city of Bakhmut. Russian Wagner fighters, mercenaries seen here, are replacing a Ukrainian flag with their own. CNN's Alex Marquardt is in the area as the urban street fight pushes right up to Bakhmut's main river. Racing into the war zone, a white-knuckle drive towards the middle of Bakhmut. This is the last successful emergency evacuation mission by the Bakhmut police. We need to go faster, an officer says. The Russians can clearly see us. This team, called the White Angels, grabs civilians who have been trapped throwing belongings in the back. There's a cat, someone else with a guitar. The fighting raging nearby. The residents told to hurry up and get in and sit anywhere they can. As they hold on tight, the rescue mission speeds away from the smoldering city. Ahead, there's smoke from a Russian strike. Getting dropped off safely, Leonid tells the officer that everything is blown up in Bakhmut, even inside his apartment. They've survived months of brutally intense assaults. Russia has made gains trying to encircle Bakhmut and surrounding it on three sides as Ukraine desperately tries to fend them off. Today, we met Bakhmut's deputy mayor in a city nearby at a makeshift aid center for Bakhmut evacuees. He tells us it's very hard to persuade the more than 4,000 civilians left there to leave. They say they have nowhere to go and have no money. It's very hard to survive there, he says. It's not life, it's survival. Drinking water is a big problem. Walking to the well is dangerous, he says. Shells landing on your head all the time. All he now feels, he tells us, is fear and sadness. Everyone here knows how hard it will be for Ukraine to hold on to Bakhmut. Sveta's elderly mother with disabilities didn't want to leave, but Sveta managed to convince her. I don't know if my house is still standing, she tells us. It's very painful thinking about those still in Bakhmut. Her eyes well up. I just want them all to survive, she says. That's my only wish. And Jake, on that horrific video of the Ukrainian soldiers seemingly being executed by Russian soldiers, it is hard to overstate the outrage that is growing here in Ukraine tonight. We are seeing reaction all across Ukrainian society. It's all over social media. We're seeing tribute art pour in. We have heard from President Volodymyr Zelensky, who has vowed to find the murderers. He also said, I want us all to respond to his words of unity. Those words of unity after that soldier defiantly taking a drag on his cigarette were Slava Ukraina, glory to Ukraine. Jake, that soldier has not yet been identified.
Yeah, Alex Marquardt in eastern Ukraine. Thank you so much. Coming up, the week shaping up to be a warm-up act in the 2024 Republican race for president and what Donald Trump says he will do if he's criminally charged. Stay with us. In our politics, laid a clear sign that the 2024 race is getting real. Two Republican heavy hitters are heading to Iowa. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will make his first stop of the year there in a few days. Former President Donald Trump will follow closely behind. As CNN's Kristen Holmes reports for us now, this comes after a weekend of dueling speeches, dueling visions, and occasional snipes from the two. Former President Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis previewing a 2024 primary showdown. For those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. So in Florida, we say very clearly, uh, we will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Our state is where woke goes to die. In a grievance-laden speech at the Conservative Political Action Conference, Trump blasted the Republican establishment. We are never going back to the party of Paul Ryan, Karl Rove, and Jeb Bush on his way to winning a resounding victory in the conference's unscientific straw poll, demonstrating the former president's enduring support with some of the party's base. While not naming DeSantis, Trump taking aim at his potential rival's past support for reforming entitlement programs. We're not going back to people that want to destroy our great social security system, even some in our own party. I wonder who that might be. Hello, California. Speaking at the Reagan Library in California, DeSantis seeming to jab at the tumult of the Trump White House years. In four years, uh, you didn't see our administration leaking like a sieve. You didn't see a lot of drama or palace intrigue. What you saw was surgical precision execution day after day after day. The dueling speeches foreshadowing an expected 2024 collision, with both Trump and DeSantis set to visit Iowa in the next week. While Trump remains a clear frontrunner, he's also facing fresh challenges, including ongoing investigations to his handling of documents and his role in the attack on the U.S. Capitol. The former president telling reporters this weekend he would not exit the race, even if he is indicted. This as the 2024 field takes shape, with some hopefuls backing away, worried a crowded contest could benefit Trump. I didn't want to have a uh, pileup of a bunch of people fighting. The more of them you have, the less chance you have for somebody rising up. But not all 2024 contenders sharing that view, including former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who is weighing a bid. I actually uh, think that more voices right now in opposition or providing an alternative to Donald Trump is the best thing in the right direction. We're still very early in this Republican primary, and we expect it to be a fairly crowded field. But I am told by multiple sources that Trump's team is laser focused on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. They have been looking into his background. They have been watching old debate clips and talking to former allies. And that's just a glimpse of really how ugly and personal this battle between the two men is expected to get. All right, Kristen Holmes, thanks so much. Let's discuss. Uh, and Nia Malika, let me start with just what we heard there from Ron DeSantis saying that in his time as governor, there hasn't been there haven't been any leaks from his administration. There hasn't been a lot of drama, just surgical conservative actions taken. Now, it's tough to get the DeSantis folks to even answer questions. But my interpretation of that was 
that was a slam on Trump. Oh, yeah. I think this is exactly what it was. It was a slam on Trump. And listen, it's what people have said about DeSantis anyway, that he is Trump, but better. Trump, but smarter. Trump, but more disciplined. And so there he was making that argument. I also will say this, and this is kind of a superficial comment. Um, he had a certain charisma as he was giving that speech. He looked sort of more presidential uh, in that speech than I, did, that, than I had seen him in previous speeches. So listen, he obviously has his eye on running, on taking it uh, straight to Trump with this idea that he can be Trump, but actually implement it in a better uh, way. Listen, will that resonate with enough uh, primary voters who sort of like the uh, raw politics that they see from Donald Trump? We'll have to see, but he clearly uh, is eyeing a, a battle with Donald Trump. Jackie, take a listen to what Trump's former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, had to say about Donald Trump yesterday. The list is long, Shannon, of folks who come to Washington on one theory and don't, aren't prepared to stand up and explain to the American people how we're actually going to get that right. It's going to take a true conservative leader, Shannon. Are you saying that President Trump wasn't a true conservative leader? Six trillion dollars more in debt. Uh, that's, nev- that's never the right direction for the country, Shannon. So again, to translate, um, that, that was a yes. I mean, when he said six trillion dollars more in debt, right. he is referring to... Donald Trump. Um, So it's interesting, though, they're criticizing him, but they're not willing to name him yet. Not yet. But I mean, if Mike Pompeo does decide to run, he's going to have to. And he and several other, um, including maybe um, uh, uh, Bolton, will have to answer, you know, why were they why they were in the administration? Why didn't they say anything? Why, um, you know, why they were so close to former President Trump for so long. And because there are, what, four potential um, former members of the administration running. Um, but in, and, uh, you know, that's one of the things Larry Hogan said in his interview when he said he wasn't going to run. He said that um, he, that he has been out front saying Trump's name, c- criticizing him. And so these others are going to have to follow suit at some point if they're going to run. And, and uh, Niamalika, um, Trump just said that, that he would stay in the 2024 race even if he's indicted, take a listen to what another potential 2024 hopeful, uh, Jackie was just referring to, uh, na- former National Security Advisor John Bolton, had to say about that. That's a pretty good sign. His attorneys are telling him that at least one of these investigations going on, he's going to be indicted very soon. Uh, I think it's for the voters to decide if he wants to keep running while he's under indictment. Uh, I think that will help uh, Republican candidates opposing him for the nomination. On the other hand, Niamalika, Trump's message at the CPAC convention was, I am your retribution, trying to manifest and channel himself as uh, the, the symbol of all the persecution that no. all of his supporters feel in, as embodied by this one potentially indicted candidate. No, listen, I thought it was a masterful speech to kind of channel that, to pick up on uh, this sort of populism grievance of politics that we saw uh, be so successful for him in 2016. These voters, primary voters, have an emotional attachment to Donald Trump. They see themselves in Donald Trump. It's odd, obviously, because he is a billionaire. Um, 
uh, who, who lives in a palatial estate in Florida. Uh, but so many of these folks believe the lies that he told them, uh, believe that essentially January 6th uh, was sort of payback, was an attempt to uh, take their country back. Uh, and so you hear him, I think, picking up on those themes, which are very powerful uh, with a certain audience, 25, 35 percent of the Republican base. And that could be enough to get him uh, to, to, to the finish line and get the nomination. And Jackie, just to recap, so uh, former Maryland mm-hmm. Governor Larry Hogan announced he's not going to seek uh, the Republican presidential nomination in 2024. He's, he says he's worried uh, right. of a multi-car pileup, as happened in 2016. Lots of candidates, <laughs> so Trump is able uh, to just uh, drive by. As of now, the, field's in, the field includes Trump, former U.N. Ambassador and Governor Nikki Haley, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, and potentially DeSantis, uh, former Vice President Mike Pence, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, uh, John Bolton and more. Um, By Hogan's logic, who else do you think should follow his lead and bow out if they want to avoid that multi-car pileup? I mean, far be it for me to take away anyone's ambition to be president. So I couldn't answer that, Jake. Um, However, I do think what Hogan's doing is going to be a rarity. This year, um, I think you'll hear much more people like uh, Asia Hutchinson who decide that the voters do need a choice. Um, but really, what he what he was saying in that interview, there is a lot of uh, a lot of Republicans that are really concerned about other about them knocking each other out and Trump w- walking right through the doors of that nomination again. We'll have to see. All right, Neamalika Henderson and Jackie Kucinich, thanks to both of you. Coming up next, protests at a construction site dubbed Cop City in Atlanta. And the serious charges now facing those who police say, we're not there for the demonstrations, but we're there for something else. Stay with us. Twenty-three people are facing domestic terrorism charges after police say they threw bricks, rocks, fireworks, and Molotov cocktails at police officers in Atlanta last night at the site of a planned police training facility. As CNN's Ryan Young reports, opponents who have been protesting this site, claim it would propagate militarized policing. An attack at the site of a proposed police and fire training center in Atlanta. This wasn't about a public safety training center. This was about anarchy, and this was about the attempt to destabilize. Police surveillance video shows protesters dressed in black, throwing rocks and bricks and setting construction vehicles on fire outside what opponents call Cop City. At least 23 people now facing domestic terrorism charges. I think it was an overreaction to the destruction of property, and I think this is the very reason why we don't want Cop City built. When you throw Molotov cocktails, large rocks, a number of items at officers, your only intent is to harm. Sunday night's violence unfolded while an organized concert was being held, part of what organizers call a week-long mass mobilization of protests against the center. The introduction of the $90 million training facility has been controversial, blindsiding residents who say they were left out of the largely secretive development process. Police have launched at least two clearing operations at the site, one in January where a protester was shot and killed by police. It is the police who have unleashed violence on black and brown communities that have led to the movement against police violence, which actually led to Atlanta itself attempting to build this militarized police center. Activists claim the facility will cultivate police militarization and brutality. If you need to know what they're going to use the police training facility for, they just showed you, right? And we're supposed to believe that somehow now they're going to start prioritizing de-escalation? And those 
circumstances are extremely questionable. The location of the 85-acre training center is also the focus of an environmental fight where forest defenders have set up camp. The city has committed to replacing trees and dedicating more than 200 acres as protected green space. The mayor of Atlanta has defended the center and its mission. This training needs space, and that's exactly what this training center is going to offer. Jake, you can see some of the burned out mess that was left behind. I've actually talked to a few of the officers who were here last night who narrowly escaped some of the fireworks that were being shot toward them. They were very upset because obviously it could have hit them in the face. When you look at all these pictures, something the police department is making clear, most of the people arrested last night don't live in Atlanta. We talked to some of the organizers for the protesters. They say that doesn't matter. But if you look here, the city says they're concerned about the people flowing into the city. Jake. Mm. All right. Interesting. Ryan Young, thanks so much. Coming up next, passenger flights gone wild. The alarming incidents during recent trips that may feel like airline safety itself is up in the air. Stay with us. This just in another frightening moment in the air, this time on board a United Airlines flight. A man is facing charges after he allegedly tried to open an emergency door and stab a flight attendant with a broken metal spoon last night. And in a separate incident today, two planes, also from United Airlines, made contact at Boston's airport. That's the same place where two planes nearly hit one another just last week. CNN's Tom Foreman is here. Tom, what more do we know about today's incident? Well, you can barely see the damage there, but what we know is that one of these planes, both United planes, were both departing. One of them was being pushed back by one of those little tug vehicles to make the departure when the right wing, as you can see right there, bumped into the tail of another plane nearby. It doesn't look like a tremendous amount of damage. Expensive vehicles, though, but this is a very serious issue. There have been numerous close calls and close collisions. There have been actual touchings like this that have been going on. And many aviation analysts are saying, look, this is a measure of how much airlines are trying to rush back into the business of getting as many airplanes as they can in the air. Not saying that's what happened here, but that is a concern for many airports that are trying to stop this. And they keep having these close calls, Jake. And just yesterday, there was another troubling moment involving a U.S. airline, this time mid-flight on a Florida-bound Southwest Airlines flight. Tell us about that. Yeah, it had taken off from Cuba. It was headed to Florida. And airline officials say it ran into a bird or a series of birds that hit the nose, hit one of the engines on the wing. The engine caught on fire. Passengers say, as you can see here, that they were covered with smoke inside. This lasted for quite some time because it was very acrid, hard to breathe. They had to make an emergency landing back in Cuba where they all got off board. This seemed to be a fairly textbook handling of a bird strike, but there's also concern that there's a bit more of that showing up lately. So a lot of questions going on about the airlines right now, Jake, and, and, and it just seems like we've had a lot of incidents, including some turbulence issues in just the past couple of days, including a woman who was up over New England on a private jet where they hit so much turbulence that she actually was killed. Yeah, no, horrible, horrible story. And we're going to talk to the head of the National Transportation Safety Board in just a few minutes. Tom Foreman, thanks so much. You're welcome. Coming up and first on CNN, what a source tells us about Donald Trump and Mike Pence essentially seeing eye to eye these days, at least on one thing. Stay with us.
Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the new study linking a popular diet to a higher risk for heart disease. What do you need to know about the meal plan? Approximately one in five Americans are following. Plus, this hour, the Mississippi State Senate will begin debating a bill that critics describe as a 21st century version of Jim Crow. The mayor of Jackson, a critic of the bill, will join me live to discuss the bill aimed specifically at his city. And leading this hour, former Vice President Mike Pence has asked a judge to block a federal grand jury subpoena compelling his testimony about January 6th. Pence's attorneys say the subpoena should be blocked because he was acting as president of the Senate that day and is therefore protected by the speech and debate clause, which would protect lawmakers from certain law enforcement actions aimed at their legislative duties. CNN's Caitlin Collins joins us with this first on CNN reporting. Uh, And um, Caitlin, Pence has indicated publicly that he would try to resist complying with the subpoena. Yeah, he said that it was unprecedented, unconstitutional. So we had an idea that they were going to try in some way to block it. But it's notable for the way that they are trying to block it. In this motion that they have filed to this judge, you're right, Jake, they are citing that speech or debate clause saying that those are the grounds that they are arguing that Mike Pence should not have to go and fully comply with what this subpoena is from the special counsel, Jack Smith, who is obviously investigating not only the classified documents situation at Mar-a-Lago, but for this situation, it's the January 6th investigation. And Jack Smith wants to speak to the former vice president, wants documents related to that. But I am told that Pence's legal team filed this motion on Friday night, seeking to block this, asking a judge to block this federal grand jury subpoena. That notably came, Jake, the same night that Trump's legal team also filed a motion to fight the subpoena, but they're arguing it based on the grounds of executive privilege, basically that the president and his senior aides can have those internal communications that don't have to be shared. This is a separate matter that Pence's legal team is trying to block it on. Now, Pence's team did not comment, neither did the Justice Department, but it will be interesting to see where this goes, because what I'm told that Pence is doing with this is basically trying to block the testimony that they believe is related to and pertains to his legislative actions on that day, how he was acting as president of the Senate. And that could potentially cover a pretty broad swath of what his testimony could be. They're not saying just that he won't testify overall, but that is uh, the argument that they're making there, Jake. And we'll see if the former vice president is successful in that. Of course, he has written a book where he talked about things that happened leading up to January 6th on January 6th that could potentially complicate this fight, both when it comes to the former president and to Pence himself in this motion. Yeah. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much with that first on CNN News. Turning to our national lead now, the National Transportation Safety Board is sending investigators to Springfield, Ohio, after a second, a second Norfolk Southern train derailed in that state in just over a month. The EPA and Ohio officials say There were very small amounts of hazardous materials in the derailed cars, but the crash is once again raising concerns about the safety of Norfolk Southern trains and trains in general in the United States. CNN's Jason Carroll is in Springfield, Ohio, near the site of this second derailment. Gates came down, and all of a sudden, right after that, it just started crashing. Caught on cell phone video, another Norfolk Southern freight train comes off the tracks, this time in Springfield, Ohio. When I looked up, all kinds of debris was shooting out underneath the train. So I started recording, and you could see the train, like, get off into gravel, and then it started collapsing and banging up. There were 212 cars on the two-and-a-half-mile-long train, 28 derailed. No one was hurt. 
four derailed tankers did contain residual amounts of chemicals, though county officials say nothing spilled on the ground. There are no hazardous materials that have contacted uh, the soil, been exposed to the air, or contacted any of the water sources. Today, the National Transportation Safety Board visited the crash site as part of its investigation into this latest derailment. We will look at management practices and policies. We'll really dig in. So the what of an accident investigation is usually immediately available. It's how we got here. That's what takes time. This is the fourth train derailment in Ohio since November and the second by Norfolk Southern in the state in just over a month. More than three hours away in East Palestine, Ohio, the cleanup continues as contaminated water and soil are being removed, though heavy rains have caused some delays. There, a faulty wheel bearing overheated, causing a fire that was caught on camera miles before the train derailed. Subsequent toxic spill forced many from their homes and is still causing health concerns. The railroads continue to enrich their executives at the expense of public safety and public health and lay off workers and compromise on safety. So the fact Ohio's now had four derailments as of yesterday, four derailments in the last five months. East Palestine was the most serious, but we still have questions are there, uh, about these other derailments, too. Norfolk Southern says safety is of the utmost importance and today announced a six-point plan that includes installing more temperature sensors, the first near East Palestine. This as the investigation continues into what caused the derailment here in Springfield. And Jake, as you can see, one of the rail cars out here in Springfield still on its side. Uh, investigators still have been unable to remove it. NTSB is here on the ground at last check. They are conducting a meeting right now with both county and local officials, as well as a representative from the rail company as well. NTSB saying it's just too soon at this point to be talking about what caused this derailment. Jake. All right, Jason Carroll, thank you so much. And speaking of the NTSB, Jennifer Hamandy is with us. She is the chair of the National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB. Um, let me just start with the question, I think, on a lot of viewers' minds. What do you say to Americans out there who read about constant train derailments and plane near misses on tarmacs and wonder just what the hell's going on? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, Jake. It is really tragic uh, what's happening right now, and we are investigating uh, many of these tragedies, whether it's a, a near collision in our, uh, in our airspace or on the ground, or whether it's a derailment, uh, we will get to the bottom of all of this and issue safety recommendations. But, you know, one thing I can tell uh, the viewers is our aviation system is the safest in the world. It is the gold standard. And when it comes to rail, uh, generally, our rail system is safe. Certainly, we would not want to see more tankers on our roads where thousands of people die annually and many more are injured. But that's not really a consolation, of course, for those in East Palestine who are suffering. Your agency is sending investigators to West Central Ohio to investigate this second tra train derailment by Norfolk Southern. Uh, what are you specifically looking for? What are you hoping to learn? Yeah, well, right now uh, the team is on the ground and it sounds like they're at their organizational meeting where 
They will begin to ask for factual information from the different entities that are there, whether it's state and local or the railroads. And uh, we, we will start evaluating the track. We'll look at the point of derailment. We'll look at the rail cars. What they're doing on scene right now is looking at the perishable evidence. What that is, is the evidence, all, everything that goes away once the, we release the scene and the railroad cleans up. Uh, so we'll get that evidence and then we'll begin to collect the information that we could collect at any point and start really looking at the investigation and gathering facts. The EPA and other emergency responders on the ground in Springfield have determined there was no hazardous spill from this train derailment. Um, several of the cars that were derailed were empty or had minimal toxic product. There were a few ethanol and propane tank cars in the train, so this could have been much worse, but it was not, thankfully. Are the safety guidelines in place for trains right now good enough, or are we going to keep seeing these derailments? Well, that's something we're going to look at in our investigation. The great thing about the NTSB, and which is why we are independent, which is why we are separate from the U.S. Department of Transportation, is we conduct federal oversight. So we'll look at the regulations, we'll look at law, and we'll see what's missing, and we'll report that in our final recommendation report. The train that derailed on Saturday had 212 cars with two crew members on board. Is that an adequate number of crew members, two, for a 212-car train? That's a great question. That is a really long train. And as you said, it had 28 uh, cars of hazardous materials. There was a spill of a non-hazardous material, polythene, uh, about four uh, dump trucks worth. So that had to be cleaned up. Uh, But two crews can be uh, a really small amount especially if something happens on the train en route and they have to inspect, say, a rail car or an axle, uh, that can be uh, quite an endeavor. So we will look at that again as part of our investigation as well. There have now been two train derailments in Ohio in the span of a month, both of them from Norfolk Southern, which made billions of dollars last year, billions, and is also doing billions in stock buybacks for its shareholders Does it concern you about the safety of Norfolk Southern trains, and are they spending too much money on things other than safety? Well, overall, train derailments have uh, per million mile has has gone up slightly, so that is always a concern. And there's always a concern for safety in transportation. We can do more when it comes to rail safety. Uh, For Norfolk Southern in particular, We will look at their management practices, their policies. We'll also look at safety culture. That's an important part of this to make sure there is a safe, a robust, comprehensive, strong safety culture in the railroad. And that'll be part of what we look at. I hear from Americans all the time who think, you know what, the fix is always in. These companies make billions of dollars, these rail lines in this instance, but it could be almost anything really. But these these rail lines make billions of dollars. Uh, And then they lobby Congress so that they have to do very, very little in terms of safety. Uh, And then what happened in East Palestine is just the natural result. Um, What's your response to that? Well, we have seen improvements over the decades in rail safety. Certainly uh, over the last several decades, we've reduced the number of accidents. But we can do so much more. And, And frankly, it should not take an act of Congress 
to improve rail safety. The NTSB has rail, rail worker safety on our most wanted list of transportation safety improvements and all, over 250 recommendations on rail safety that haven't yet been implemented. So action should be taken now and it shouldn't require an act of Congress to do so. But if action isn't taken, then that's what has to be done. Well, Norfolk Southern announced today that it will reform its hot bearing detectors that detects whether or not uh, the, the bearings of the train are heating up too much after your agency said in a report that the East Palestine train derailment was caused by the train's wheel bearing overheating. Uh, are you satisfied by the company's plan to reform these hot bearing detectors? Well, it's a good first step. I imagine we're going to have many more recommendations. I imagine we'll have some urgent safety recommendations. We've sent off the pressure relief uh, valves and devices off to testing to check those. Uh, we're going to look at the tank cars. There were 15 uh, tank cars, DOT 111 tank cars, that don't have the type of fortification that other tank cars do. And so we'll look at that as part of this investigation as well. Just to explain to our viewers, you say there's a, the most wanted list of train safety, 250 recommendations. You've issued them already. Is that, is that what you're saying? And, and you're just waiting for the, the railroads to just do this on their own voluntarily? How does it work? So our recommendations at the end of, the process of our investigation, we issue a safety recommendation. And then uh, those safety recommendations are looked at by those who receive them. It could be the Federal Railroad Administration. It could be other portions of the Department of Transportation. It could be the railroads, could be firefighters or state and local entities. And so we have over 250 that are still on our books that are open, some of which are open unacceptable status because there has not been movement on those. But we're going to continue to advocate for those. When the NTSB ends an investigation, that doesn't stop our work. We then spend the rest of our time advocating and pushing entities to implement those recommendations because that's when real safety change occurs. Right, but it, they don't have to do it, right? No, they do not. And, you know, uh, Jake, on, on that uh, point, uh, uh, many people don't understand why the NTSB doesn't have regulatory authority. If we did, we would have to do cost-benefit analysis. What we owe to the American people is what occurred, regardless of cost, regardless of feasibility, what happened and what would prevent it from happening again. And then the other entities like FRA, FIMSA and others can take a look at it and see if they want to implement it. But we continue to advocate for those recommendations to see them implemented. NTSB Chair Jennifer Hammondy, thank you so much. It sounds like you should get regulatory authority, but that's just me. I'm a different breed of cat. Coming up. Horrifying numbers out of Iran, where officials now say they're investigating the suspected poisoning of 5,000 schoolchildren, mostly girls. Then, trapped and cut off, more than 15 feet of snow has buried entire communities in the United States where people are running out of food and medications. Plus, comedian Chris Rock slaps back at Will Smith, but did he miss his target? That's ahead. And we're back with our world lead. Today, Iran's so-called supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, called the suspected poisoning of hundreds of Iranian schoolgirls a, quote, unforgivable crime. Although Iranian officials say they're investigating, so far no one has been arrested. 
On Saturday alone, CNN verified dozens of new poisonings across 10 provinces in Iran. CNN's Nima Elbagar talks to young victims and their families as investigators try to pin the girl's symptoms on anxiety. Furious parents outside an education office in Tehran. Challenging Iranian authorities desperate for answers. After what is believed to be the worst day of incidents of suspected poisonings at girls' schools, these videos were filmed on Saturday, which marks the start of the school week in Iran. For months now, Iranian schoolgirls and their families have been speaking out about incidents of suspected poisoning. The numbers of incidents reported to CNN in the dozens. Then, over the weekend, dozens more. CNN was able to verify these new incidents using video and witness testimony across 10 provinces. The U.S. and others are calling for Iran's authorities to investigate these incidents. But speaking to CNN, medical sources say they have been barred by hospital administrators from sharing details of symptoms and test results, even with the patient's parents. We dubbed this doctor's voice for his safety. I'm inside Iran. My phone is being monitored. I can't share any more with you. Iran's interior minister, after months of vague statements, now says suspicious samples have been found and are being assessed at laboratories. Parents, though, say they don't trust authorities to investigate. To hell with this country and its rulers. We would be better off without a leader. This is our country. They don't know what they're doing. They don't even have medicine. All the incidents begin in a similar manner, as described to us by students. A noxious smell and then... I felt dizzy and fainted. I had dimness of vision and heart palpitations. All of us had identical symptoms, palpitations. My hands and legs were numb and frozen. I was shaken. We had tears coming out of our eyes. With no one so far held to account and parents no closer to answers, many continue to risk their lives to challenge Iran's authorities. What is so upsetting for these schoolgirls and their parents is that even while they are risking everything to call authorities to account, they're faced with this shifting narrative of both this claim that investigations will move forward, but also the dismissal of so much of this as merely hysteria and rumor, Jake. And Emma, in late February, your team published a story on the torture centers used by the Iranian regime to brutalize protesters, just protesters into submission. And now the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee is calling for an investigation. Uh, What do we know about the scope of that uh, investigation? Well, our investigation found at least three dozen black sites across Iran. And, 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 And we were working with an awareness that given the sourcing on this, given the fear that so many people faced, that that was an incredibly conservative number. What the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is calling for, and as you know, it it is essentially the U.S. government's lead on foreign policy, is that the U.N. takes forward its international mandate to look into this and try and and, and expand the scope of that beyond what we were able to do with the resources available to to us. Those we're speaking to, those who have spoken out to us, Jake, though, they see this as an incredible step forward. They are so heartened by this call, uh, this call on the part of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. They really feel vindicated. Yeah. 
Amazing reporting, as always, Nima. Nima Abagar, thank you so much. Coming up next, the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, joins me live as lawmakers in his state discuss taking over part of the city's court system in legislation that he calls modern-day apartheid. Stay with us. In our politics lead, this hour, the Mississippi State Senate is considering a controversial bill that critics call the 21st century Jim Crow. The area near the Capitol government buildings right now in Jackson, that area has its own district patrolled by Capitol police officers. Republican lawmakers in the Statehouse have passed a bill that would expand that specially designated district to encompass about a third of Jackson's population, including the densest populated white neighborhoods and also some of the city's most affluent. Uh, This would also set up a separate court system for that district. Jackson as a whole is 83% black. Critics of this move say it's basically the white minority of the city taking control from the black leaders of a majority black city. It's a move the city's mayor has called right, racist and likened to apartheid. CNN's Omar Jimenez is live for us in Jackson, Mississippi, at the state capitol. And Omar, the state senate has made a few key changes to the House bill. How are residents and city leaders reacting to those changes? Yeah, we just got out of a hearing with some of those residents and city leaders, and really what they said, they were voicing concerns about how to address public safety here in Jackson, where violence has spiked in recent years, but more specifically, they were voicing concerns about this bill. Now, some of the key changes from when it was first introduced on the House side to where it is now on the Senate side is rather than having a single district with these state-appointed judges and an expanded jurisdiction of this Capitol Police Force, that jurisdiction now expands citywide. You still, though, have the issue of having judges appointed by state leaders, which in this case are majority white, instead of elected judges in a city that is more than 80 percent black. So therein lies one of the major issues. And that jurisdiction of the Capitol Police Force would expand citywide, meant to strike an agreement with the Jackson Police Force on how to police in theory together. So I want you to take a listen to the district attorney uh, over the area of Jackson, along with the mother of a man who was killed by a Capitol Police officer and why she believes this expansion is not a good idea. It's laughable to talk about uh, new bills, doing new things when we have not addressed the old problems. The problem is not the police. The problem is a system that we're not funding to actually get the system working. Because I know there are bills that this this legislature has introduced that will expand Capitol Police's authority, possibly to the entire city of Jackson, and that terrifies me. It also angers me. And there is a lot of anger around this. You look no further than T-shirts we've seen that it's Jackson versus everybody, which is how many residents feel. Now, proponents of this bill, including its Republican sponsors, say that this is really needed to help keep Jackson safer and to increase and bolster resources towards judges in these cases or a judiciary that hasn't seen as much investment to keep up with the pace of what they've had to deal with. But obviously, opponents of this say there are better ways to address those concerns than this. All right, Omar Jimenez in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, thanks so much. Let's bring in the mayor, uh, Shokwe Antar Lumumba. Uh, mayor Lumumba, thanks so much for joining us. So the state Senate version of the bill would remove the creation of this new unelected court system for parts of Jackson where a majority of the city's white population li- lives, which, which you likened to apartheid. But 
the state Senate v- version does still I- expand state control over other parts of Jackson. Are you satisfied with the changes made to the bill by the state Senate? When I think about this bill in both of its forms, I think about the legal principle of race ipsa loquitur, uh, which simply means that it is flawed in its very nature. Uh, and, and so uh, even with the changes, it is still an attack on black leadership. Uh, it still is a Trojan horse cloaked uh, in the notion of public safety, uh, where it is not evidence-based, uh, where it, it looks to uh, not only fail to support the needs of the city that have been enumerated for many years. Uh, We have asked the state legislature uh, for support in terms of ballistic technology to close cases. We have asked the state for support of our 21st century uh, real-time crime center that helps uh, officers when a crime is actively in progress. We have asked for support of violence interruption programming, uh, incredible messenger programming, all which have been denied and have have met a, a deliberate indifference or a willful disregard of Jackson's needs. Uh, in order to have ev- evidence-based solutions, you would need to know that the overwhelming majority of our violent crimes in Jackson are interpersonal. Uh, and so that is a very difficult matter to police. And so we're trying to inter, uh, intercede or, or stop this cycle uh, where people are taking permanent solutions to temporary problems uh, and bring other resources uh, and other forms of intervention to to the table in order for it to help our residents. One of the bill's chief sponsors, uh, State Representative Trey Lamar, he denies any racial motivation behind the legislation. He says the bill's an effort to address that crime in Jackson is soaring and there's a backlog in the courts. How do you respond? Well, first and foremost, uh, we just listened to the testimony of Cliff Johnson today of the MacArthur Justice Foundation. Uh, that did a actual true data comparison of the backlogs of Hines County in comparison to other counties in the state of Mississippi. Uh, to scale, what you find is that there isn't a significant backlog in comparison to other places. Uh, Cliff Johnson also, when asked, I'm not Cliff Johnson, Trey Lamar, when asked uh, at the dais defending his bill, why he felt that judges needed to be appointed rather than uh, elected, he said, well, we simply want the best of the best. That feeds into the notion of inferiority. That feeds into the notion that this uh, largely majority black city is not smart enough or equipped enough to know who best represents them. Uh, and it, there is no uh, evidence-based rationale uh, for, for the creation of this district. Whichever version, first of all, if you take the first version, uh, we would need to ask from Trey Lamar, while his version of the bill uh, selected the most densely populated white portion of the city, uh, Jackson mm-hmm. is 80 85 percent black, but that portion is about 86 percent, encompasses 86 percent of the white population of Jackson. Was that by mere happenstance? Uh, There are no state facilities within that district. Uh, And so, you know, he is using the Trojan horse that has been used historically uh, on a number of occasions in order to disenfranchise and in, in order to abuse largely black populations. What would you say to a constituent who says, Mr. Mayor, I hear you and I agree. I don't I don't trust the motivation of these individuals. But Jackson recorded the highest murder rate in the country for a city of over 100,000 people in 2021. Crime is a huge problem in Jackson. Um, I'd rather have something than nothing. And they're not going to fund what you're asking for. This at least would uh, provide some relief from for the police uh, that that exist in the area that will not be included in this? 
Yeah. Well, what I would say is that their concern is my concern. Uh, and that is why uh, we continue to look for new solutions. That is why we not only uh, recruit more officers, but talk about and build the, the institutions that I've told you about, such as our real-time uh, command center, which we've done through our own resources. Uh, we've joined in with Wells Fargo Bank and National League of Cities to create an office of violence prevention and trauma recovery so that for every uh, new officer or as we're bringing on new officers, we're bringing on additional interventions, bringing in social workers and mental health experts to help curtail some of the challenges that we see in our community. Uh, our sharpest rise in violence has been amongst our youngest demographic. And so instead of doing a curfew where there isn't detention centers uh, to hold people, nor does it truly get to the root cause of why young people may find themselves in vulnerable places at vulnerable times, uh, how do we have people who are specialized in the area of working with that population so that we teach, train, and, and support young people that they don't take permanent solutions to their temporary problems? Uh, we can talk about and continue, not only in addition to the things that I mentioned, other supports that help our police department, uh, but what we don't want to do in a moment of crisis is reach for a solution which is worse than where we find ourselves. All right, Jackson Mayor Shokwe Antar Lumumba, thank you so much for your time today, sir. We appreciate it. Thank you. The new warning about the trendy keto diet and how it could actually be bad for your health. Stay with us. In our national lead, a desperate situation in California as some residents remain trapped by walls of snow. Back-to-back winter storms are overwhelming mountain communities. And in San Bernardino County, emergency crews are struggling to reach people who are running out of food and medication. CNN's Camilla Bernal is live for us in Crestline, California. Camilla, what are you hearing from residents in areas where grocery stores can't even open? Jake, I am hearing so much frustration and so much anger. Someone walked by me just a few minutes ago saying this is a mess and rightfully so because it sort of is a mess. It's taking a long time to get all of these roads clear. That supermarket that you just mentioned right behind me, this is the only one uh, in this area. Of course, the roof collapsed because there was so much snow. And look, this community is coming together. There are a lot of people bringing donations. Just a few hours ago, they started bringing firewood. And Unfortunately, I've also talked to residents who've told me I can't even turn on my fireplace because there is so much snow on top of it. And I want to just show you some of the piles of snow just to give you perspective of what locals are dealing with, but also what officials are dealing with. Right now, what they're saying is that the priority is cleaning up the roads. They're about 80% done with that work, but now they have to go to the side streets. A lot of those streets are where you find the homes where people are in and can't get out because of those smaller roads that are blocking their entryway to maybe the main road. Uh, we've also seen a lot of donations because of a lot of because of a lot a lot of these people can't get to uh, these places. Neighbors are coming and picking up donations, taking it to people who cannot get out of their homes. I talked to someone who told me, look, I've been here for more than 10 days and I'm starting to feel just extremely claustrophobic. Someone said, I feel like I'm imprisoned here. So it's just so much frustration and authorities are just saying there's nothing you can do. You just have to wait. Jake. All right, Camilla Bernal, thank you so much. Topping our health lead today. You may have heard of a keto or keto-like diet that's low carbs, high fat. It's a meal plan. It's hooked nearly one in five Americans, according to researchers. And it's, it's clear why if you're trying to lose weight, recipes such as black and white keto fat bombs or cheesy bacon ranch chicken sound 
well, too good to be true. And now a new Canadian study suggests they probably are. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins us now to break it down. Elizabeth, what did the researchers discover about the hugely popular keto diet? Jake, what they discovered basically is that for some people, it wasn't very good for their hearts. So let's take a look at what the researchers found. They looked at about 300 people, some of whom were on a keto or a keto-like diet. So in other words, very high in fat, some of those recipes you mentioned, and some of whom were on just a regular diet. What they found when they followed these folks for 11 years, and that's one of the strengths of this study is that they followed them for such a long time, nearly 10% of them who were on the keto-like diet had some kind of a cardiac event, a heart attack, a stroke, blocked arteries, whereas only 4.3% of the folks who were on the standard diet had one of those events. Now, the researchers make it clear that there were, you know, certainly people who were on the keto diets who did not have higher cholesterol, who did not have heart problems, but certainly those numbers, even though it's a small percentage of each, there clearly is a difference there. Jake? Elizabeth, even before uh, the keto diet became popular, doctors recommended it to some children with epilepsy. Is there still some usefulness to the diet if, if done correctly? There is, Jake. It really is sort of an interesting sort of beginning to how this started. Children with epilepsy who where the drugs, uh, you know, drug regimens weren't helping them, they would put them on this diet and it did help some of them. So that recommendation is still there for some children. I mean, you have to consult with the doctor. You wouldn't want to just do this. But they have found that that diet can help some children who can't find relief from their epilepsy with medication. All right. Important note there. Elizabeth Cohen, thanks so much. Still ahead almost a year later. Comedian Chris Rock is still feeling the sting of the Will Smith Oscars slap. Did his jokes pack a punch? Stay with us. In our pop culture lead, well, it took almost a year and presumably tens of millions of Netflix dollars. But Chris Rock finally told us what he thought. What he thought about Will Smith slapping him in the face at last year's Oscars after Rock joked about his wife, Jada Pinkett Smith's hair. It wasn't until the end of the hour-plus-long set Saturday night, filmed live in Jada Pinkett Smith's hometown of Baltimore, that Rock then went off on the actor, and perhaps even more pointedly, on his wife. Here's CNN's Stephanie Elam. I have tried to do a show tonight without offending nobody, okay? I'm going to try my best. You know why? Because you, you never know who might get triggered. Chris Rock on stage and hitting back at Will Smith nearly a year after the infamous Oscar slap. People say, they always say, uh, words hurt. That's what they say. Gotta watch what you say, because words hurt. You know, anybody that says words hurt has never been punched in the face. (laughs) Will Smith practices selective outrage. Rock suggesting Smith's response to his Oscars joke about wife Jada Pinkett Smith's hairstyle was more about their relationship than him. His wife was her son's friend. She hurt him way more than he hurt me. Rock covered a wide range of topics, including addiction, abortion, and racism, but left some of his sharpest lines for Smith. Y'all know what happened to me, getting smacked by Suge Smith. I love Will Smith. My whole life I loved this. My whole life I root for this. Okay? And now I, I watch Emancipation just to see him get whooped. 
referring to Smith's role as an enslaved man in the period drama Emancipation. Smith, who has apologized publicly, has said he worries the slap could impact Emancipation's success. My behavior was unacceptable. Rock not holding back, ending the special with this final blow. How come you didn't do nothing back? I got parents. And you know what my parents taught me? Don't fight in front of white people. Stephanie Elam, CNN, Hollywood. Here to give us uh, more is uh, Leslie Gray Streeter, a columnist for the Baltimore Banner. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Leslie. So let's start with your opinion piece you wrote about Chris Rock's special. You wrote, quote, uh, partly, um, quote, he in- insisted last night that nobody was picking on that bitch, meaning Jada Pinkett Smith, while he's been picking on that woman from behind the mic since the late 1990s, unquote. The special, Chris Rock's special, was titled Selective Outrage. He accused Will Smith of selective outrage. You say... Rock has selective outrage. Explain. I think so. I think that, first of all, if you get hit in the face and you, you're the one who gets to decide how you deal with it. He didn't hit him. He waited a year. He sharpened his words. Even though you say words don't hurt, those words were certainly fashioned to hurt, to hit, to do it in her hometown, to do it the week before the Oscars. So he selected what he was mad about. Not only did he select it, he kind of decided that it was about one thing being Will and Jada's marriage that he had just snapped somehow. That was it. The final thing I got to go smack Chris Rock right before I get an Oscar probably and nothing to do with anything that he'd said about her. And I thought that's probably not true. So I watched the special. Um, he, I think he's a brilliant uh, stand-up comedian uh, and has been for, for decades. I know you have felt the same way about his work in the past. Um, it was yeah. very raw He was very honest. I guess um, from reading your tweets and reading your column, you feel that you don't doubt his honesty, but that you feel like those feelings were kind of anachronistic and and misplaced. You know, I think once again, you get to feel the way that you feel about something. And once again, like I said, he was attacked on nationwide television. However, he's had a year to hone this, to get this right, to figure out what he was going to say. And I thought that some of the things that he said, like, blaming things on her. It reminded me, someone pointed out to me today that Jada Smith, Pinkett Smith is in the long tradition of women like Yoko Ono and Meghan Markle, who are blamed entirely for the actions of grown men, that somehow she's like going, do it, do it, do it. We didn't see that. And trust me, if we saw that, if that had happened, if there was images of that or video of that, it'd be played a long time ago. I don't know about their marriage. I've never met them. I only know what they've told and they've told a lot, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense to say, to decide that the only thing that this was about was them and not about him. If you're not a victim, like you say you are, why do you keep talking about how much bigger Will Smith is than you? You were the victim of this moment because you were on the other side of the of the slap. If you're over it, you're really not. If you took it like Pat Pacquiao, maybe you did physically, but still you're holding on to things. And you, once again, you get to, but be honest about that and be honest about what you said about this woman calling her, as we say, out of her name in her hometown. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting that I hear you saying is that uh, Chris Rock seemed to say, Will Smith hit me because he's upset that his, they have an open marriage, uh, Will and Jada Pinkett Smith. He's upset that his wife slept with a friend of their son and that was humiliating. And then they have this like internet talk show where they talk about these things and that must've been humiliating too. So Will Smith was mad at his situation, not at me. That, that's 
but you seem to be saying, and maybe I'm wrong, tell me if I'm wrong, he's not actually saying that. He just wants to embarrass Will Smith by mentioning all of that. Well, he might think that. I don't know if he thinks that. I think it was weird because then you have to talk about, you don't talk about the history of him, like I, like you said, saying things about her jokingly or not since 1997. When he says that he, that she wanted him to not host the Oscars in 2016 because of the Oscar so white boycott that she was a part of. He says this was just about not getting him to do it because her husband didn't get nominated. And once again, this makes it just about her and her feelings that she did a personal thing to hurt his career because he wouldn't boycott the Oscars just because her husband wasn't nominated. So all of these things were happening to say she started it in colorful language. I finished it. But then to slap back at her, haha, slap back last year um, about her hair. If you got beef and you think that you handle it and you still are rebeefing, you know what you're doing, right? You know what you're doing. Once again, no one gets to slap you, but you can't feign. It's hard to feign ignorance if you think that you've got beef with these people that she started and then go, oh, by the way, look at your hair. Yeah. Wow, three incredibly brilliant performers. Uh, so it, it's a shame that it's that it's the, so much of the talk about them is about the beef as opposed to their talent. But Leslie Gray Streeter, uh, you always make me think about things differently. So thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead scene. And if you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to the lead from whence you get your podcasts. All two hours of it just sitting there ready for you to pluck like like delicious giant blueberries our coverage continues next with wolf blitzer in the situation room he's going to talk to democratic senator joe manchin of west virginia you won't want to miss it stay with us we all do things our own way and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique you need a bed that fits you just the right way sleep number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are using cutting edge technology to give you effortless high quality sleep every night jd power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store and now the queen sleep number c4 smart bed is only 1599 save 300 dollars only for a limited time for J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.